Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm B.T. Newberg of the brand new podcast, The History of Sex. We explode gender norms by exploring their incredible variety across time. In today's culture of gay marriage, trans rights, and a new politically correct term every day, things can feel a little chaotic. It makes you long for the good old days. When men were men and women were women, and nothing could be more clear, right? Well, sorry to break it to you, but... Those days never existed. If there's one thing the history of sex teaches us, it's that sex and gender have varied fantastically across different eras and cultures. For example, did you know that the Nazis encouraged young women to bear a child out of wedlock for the fatherland? Or that pre-contact Hawaii had no such thing as marriage? Or that ancient Romans had no concept of orientation, only a vague sense of preference for one sex or the other? That's the kind of stuff that we'll be covering in our new podcast, The History of Sex. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get podcasts. The History of Sex. Hello, everyone. Thanks for being with me today. Since I last produced a full episode, I've become a married man and met Mike Duncan in person. So it's been an exciting time. Every session at the Sound Education Conference was being filmed, so I'm hopeful that you will get to see my discussion with Mike, as well as the History Podcasters panel that I was a part of, and I'll let you know uh, if and when they go online. You will also be hearing introductions uh, in our next few episodes from some lovely podcasters that I met while in Boston. Uh, you'll have heard one today uh, from our friend B.T. Newberg and his new show, The History of Sex. More on that later. While I've been gone from your feeds, I've also been working on videos of the Byzantine sites in Istanbul to finally fulfill rewards for my Kickstarter backers. I'm on the verge of completing a five-part series on the most important Byzantine building still standing. Of course, that is the Hagia Sophia, and I now know far more about Constantinople's cathedral than I ever thought I would. Which makes it the perfect time to answer another Kickstarter backer's question, since backer A.L. asked three about Justinian's famous church. Let me throw all of them at you right now so you know what we're going to be talking about today. One, what was the imperial coronation ceremony like? 2. What type of windows and lighting did the original Hagia Sophia use? And 3. Why does the church face towards Jerusalem instead of the east, like other Orthodox churches? All great questions. 
let's start with imperial coronations. And it's worth saying straight off that there was no fixed coronation ceremony in Byzantium. As you'd expect, the rituals associated with the elevation of an emperor evolved over the centuries. Speaking of elevation, you may remember that back in the days of the United Empire, a new Vasilevs was lifted up on a shield and displayed to the army or to the people to receive their cheers and acclamations. This was standard practice during the era when the army dominated the selection of new emperors, and was still part of the routine when our podcast began. Even 60-year-old Anastasius had to steady himself on top of a shield as he was shown to the crowds in the Hippodrome. Neatly, though, it was our first Vasilevs back in 476, Leo I, who was the first emperor to be crowned by the Patriarch. And it was the much-maligned Phocas, the man who Heraclius overthrew, who was the first to be crowned in church. Both men were army candidates with no public profile, and it was felt that involving the ecclesiastical hierarchy would help legitimize their rule. Interestingly, it wasn't until Heraclius's grandson, Constans II, that the ceremony actually moved inside the Hagia Sophia itself. From that point until where we are now in the narrative, emperors would usually be crowned in the great church. The exact form the ceremony took changed over the centuries, but the version we know best is the one written down by Constantine Porfirogenitos in his Book of Ceremonies. Constantine VII was the man who spent most of his life under the control of Romanos Le Capinos, during that time, he pursued various scholarly pursuits, including collating all imperial ceremonies into one collection. He dedicated the book to his son, Romanos, who he hoped would never have to suffer the indignities that he had. And as you know, Romanos died young, leaving his son Basil II in exactly the same position that Constantine had been in. And he grew up in the shadow of Nicephorus Phocas and John Zemiskis. Anyway... Thanks to Constantine's diligence, we have a step-by-step -step guide of how to crown an emperor. So I'll take you through it now. The emperor would process in his regalia from the palace to the church. He was greeted and wished many good years on his way by the leading office holders, and then bowed to by the rest of the senators and offered the sign of the cross by the palace guards, the imperial entourage then made its way to the southwest entrance to the Hagia Sophia. This is known today as the Vestibule of the Warriors. Inside, the Vasilevs would change into his ceremonial outfit, and then walk to the main doorway of the nave. There he would be met by the patriarch, and the two would light candles together. The two men now enter the nave, and make their way to the doors of the sanctuary. Beyond this was the altar, but the emperor stopped here and prayed before the doors and lit more candles. He then turned around and made his way up the ambo, or pulpit, with the patriarch. Up there already on a small table were the crown and purple cloak. The patriarch now blesses the purple, and attendants put it on the emperor. This purple garment, or the clamis, is a long cloak fastened on the right shoulder with a clasp, 
leaving the right arm free uh, outside of the cloak. Uh, you can picture this pretty easily if you Google the famous San Vital mosaic of Justinian. So that's the look that stayed consistent over the centuries for ceremonies such as this. Next, the patriarch prays over the crown and then places it on the head of the Vasilefs. As soon as he does that, the congregation cry out, Holy, 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 glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. And they do that three times. Then they say, Many years to Basil, great emperor and sovereign, or insert name of whoever was being crowned, obviously. The crown, by the way, also went through changes over time. Its basic structure was still that of the diadem, but it had become more elaborated and more ornate by our period. We keep track of it best through its depiction on coins. It, too, still looks quite similar to the one Justinian was wearing, with ornaments hanging from it. And it's still much slimmer than, say, a modern royal crown like the one Queen Elizabeth II wears. The Vasilefs now enters his special enclosure in the south aisle and sits down, and the ranks of nobles now visit him in order of importance. They bow down and they kiss both his knees, and each wishes him many and good years, and then moves on. When that's finished, the church service continues as it would on a normal feast day until everyone leaves. The structure of this ceremony rather assumes that the emperor has already been acclaimed as Vasilefs by the court. After all, he enters from the palace, being given imperial levels of respect by his courtiers, and the crowning merely confirms what is already clear to everyone. So despite the patriarch being the one who places the crown on his head, the emperor does not owe his elevation to his archbishop. This dynamic is one that generally played out for caretaker emperors or usurping emperors. So uh, Romanos Lecapinos or uh, Nicephorus Phocas would have come to the Hagia Sophia to have their seizure of power confirmed by the church. For many emperors, though, the crowning took place when they were much younger. Constantine VII and Basil II were both toddlers, when they were elevated to imperial status. In this version of the ceremony, it was the senior emperor, in both their cases their father, who placed the crown on their head. As soon as this was done, the deems would lead the chant of worthy, 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 to indicate their approval of the choice, and a huge list of acclamations was then chanted, again led by the deemsmen. For God has shown mercy on his people. This is the great day of this the This is the day of salvation for the Romans. This day is the joy and glory of the, the world. crown of imperial Glory power. to God, the ruler glory of all. Glory to God who has proclaimed you emperor. Glory to God who has to the glory determined. and exaltation of the Romans. May God listen to your people. Many, 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 many years upon to many you. Years. Many years to you, the servants of the Lord. Many years to you. There are plenty more listed in this vein, closing with many years for the emperors, and then a great cheer would go up. 
so in this case, the young boy is not seen as an emperor when he enters the church, so he must receive these elaborate acclamations to show his acceptance by the assembled notables of Byzantium. You can also sort of see the church-state tension played out in the dynamics of these ceremonies. The emperor, despite being God's vice-regent, does not enter the sanctuary, where only the senior clergy can go. And similarly, the patriarch can crown a new emperor, but when a senior Vasilevs is present, he chooses a junior one and crowns his successor himself. I should just add while we're here that if you'd like to know more about the coronation ceremony of an empress, then go back and check out episode 77. In the West, a different tradition emerged, where kings were often anointed with oil by a priest. This obviously has its own rich history and evolution, but to simplify for our purposes, this system implies that the king is an ordinary man until the priests transform him through this ceremony. The would-be king himself would bow down before this holy substance that was going to transform him. And that's quite different from the Byzantine ceremony, where the emperor enters already an elevated person and remains standing throughout. The coronation does not make him the Vasilefs, it merely confirms him in his sacral role within the elite. When the Fourth Crusade captures Constantinople in 1204, a line of Latin emperors will be established, and their coronation ceremony naturally involved anointing. The Byzantines will retake the city 60 years after that, and by the time we next get a description of an imperial coronation, anointing has been adopted as part of the ceremony. It's in a slightly different form to the Western tradition, and there are still many recognizable elements from the Book of Ceremonies. But, as ever, Byzantium adapted and evolved. Listener A.L. also asked about the Omphalion circle on the floor of the Hagia Sophia. For those of you who've visited Istanbul, you may remember a square of coloured circles on the nave floor. And I've put up a picture at thehistoryofbyzantium.com. Our first mention of this feature comes around 1200 AD, when a foreign visitor mentions that the emperor's throne was sitting on red marble. It's not completely clear from this when the pattern was introduced or for what exact purpose. There are other references to pieces of coloured marble being inserted into the floor to indicate where an emperor should stand during parts of the service. So this may be the final elaboration of earlier ideas. The suggestion has been made that this was the spot where later emperors were crowned, which makes sense, but we can't be sure. Our second question is about the windows and lighting of Justinian's original church. Both were major concerns of the architects. They were designing a building of unprecedented size, and yet had to ensure that the interior was light enough to host the major services of the Christian calendar. When you visit today, the building is much gloomier than it would once have been. Many windows have been blocked up over the centuries to aid stability, 
and many additions to the outside of the building now block light that would have come in. These include several sultan's tombs, along with buttresses designed to prevent the walls splaying outward under the weight of the dome. When it was first built, there would have been huge windows all along the south wall, allowing as much daylight in as possible. Generally, these were not huge panes, as we might see today on a skyscraper, but smaller ones divided up by marble grills. The glass used would have been less opaque than the panes that we're used to today, and probably carried a slight colour, though there was no stained glass in Justinian's original. At night, the building would be lit by hundreds of candles and oil lamps scattered around the building. I've put up a picture of a Byzantine-style lamp holder on the website. A 6th-century eyewitness describes long, twisted chains of brass hanging from the cornice of the dome, holding silver discs on which oil lamps were lit. This was the central point of illumination, and the feature that was then imitated and improved upon during later Byzantine times, during Ottoman times, and then replaced by the electric lights you can see today. But there were also chains hanging off the wooden tie beams between columns that would have had lamps in them. There were lamps on top of the chancel screen, and hundreds connected to the balconies of the gallery. It was described as like seeing the stars on a cloudless night. The effect would have been different from electric lighting, as there would be no fixed, defined shadows. Instead, the flickering light would just softly diffuse around the whole building. Our final question is, why does the Hagia Sophia face Jerusalem rather than the east, like most Orthodox churches? I hadn't heard that idea before, but listener A.L. tells me that a tourist guide in Istanbul claimed this to be the case. I looked into it, and I was fascinated by what I found. Uh, first of all, I should say that uh, most churches face east because of connections between the rising sun and the second coming of Christ. The specific orientation of the Hagia Sophia, though, doesn't seem to have anything to do with Jerusalem, but simply to maximize daylight. The building's longitudinal axis is aligned with the azimuth of the sun on the shortest day of the year, as in the winter solstice. This means that the morning light would come through the windows of the apse and eastern semi-domes, lighting the nave along its east-west axis, perfect for a church service. In winter, the optimum time for this would be 8.30am, and in summer, around 11am. Services could, in theory, be planned around the light, with beams hitting the altar, the ambo, or even a well-placed icon at precise moments in the liturgy. It seems unlikely that the architects were thinking quite that far ahead, though. We assume they just aimed to create a church which would maximise the available daylight and installed windows as high up as possible, including in the dome itself, to expose the gold mosaic and beautiful marbles 
which they'd gathered to decorate the interior. Such astronomical accuracy was well within the capabilities of our 6th century architects, but we probably shouldn't give them all the credit. Studies of Roman cities have shown that their grid street patterns were often aligned with the sun in a similar way. Given the orientation of other buildings in Constantinople, it's possible that the Hagia Sophia was just fitting in with the existing direction of the streets in the oldest part of the town. The choice of orientation could therefore vary more out in the countryside. A church dedicated to a particular saint might be oriented to maximize the sunlight on their patron's feast day. Thank you so much to Kickstarter backer AL for those questions, and uh, I hope you enjoyed the answers. I certainly enjoyed researching them. There is, of course, so much more one can say about the Ahia Sophia, some of which our wonderful Kickstarter backers will be enjoying soon when the videos are released. And of course, those of you coming to Istanbul in 2020 will get to see the building for yourselves, which, believe me, is a wonderful experience. The 2020 tours are already sold out, so if you're interested in 2021 and beyond, send me an email at thehistoryofbyzantium at gmail.com to make sure that you have the information as soon as it's available. I will be releasing more end-of-the-century and backer rewards episodes, but as I mentioned when we paused the narrative, I owe subscribers and backers a lot of rewards, so there won't be any new narrative episodes until next year. I know that's upsetting, but uh, you can always pass the time with sex. The History of Sex podcast, that is. <laughs> yeah, you heard Brandon at the start of today's episode. He is the host of the Dead Ideas podcast, who we've mentioned before, and whose Roman and Byzantine episodes come highly recommended. And uh, this is the new show from the team, exploring the history of gender and sexuality with trademark wit and creativity. Find it wherever you get your podcasts or from historyofsexpod.podbean.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a Swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.